Well, good morning, everyone, and good morning to those who are joining us online. We're so glad that you're with us today. You know, we're in a third week of our Lenten series, and we've entitled this Travel Light, and Pastor Deb and Pastor Tim have done a great job of kicking us off in this series. Don't you agree? Yeah, I love Pastor Tim's stories. They are just so funny. Um, he tells them when we're gathered as a staff, too, and we just are rolling at some of his family stories. In the ninth chapter, though, of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And the following chapters in the Gospels are called the travel narratives. We hear how Jesus travels through towards Jerusalem to his destination, but it's not his final destination, is it? His final destination is the cross and the empty grave. The empty grave, eternal life, is his final destination. Will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, take our brokenness aside and make it beautiful. Holy God, touch my mind, my heart, my lips, my tongue, my voice, and make them yours, God. May the meditations of my heart and words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, and may we hear your word and live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible app and you want to open up that Bible app, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And it begins this way. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of the body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Well, the Gospels tell us a lot of dinner conversations. And in fact, Luke has more mealtime scenes than any of the other Gospels. Maybe that's why Luke is my favorite Gospel. I do like to eat. We were gathered here as a staff every morning. You may not know this. We pray in this room before you ever get here. And we were gathered as a staff this morning. We were circled up and we were praying. And I said, tell, tell me your name. So we were gathered around and we were um, just talking about a dinner party. And a lot of them said, well, they love the food. I said, I love the dessert. <laughs> and um, some of them said they liked it when it was over. But Luke tends to tell the Christian story from the lens of two things. He either talks about a journey or he talks about a party. And the several stories end with a celebratory party like the prodigal of the lost son. And we're going to be talking about that next week. But these themes of journey and celebration come together in the Last Supper and then finally on the road to Emmaus as the Gospel of Luke concludes. And today's lesson involves some table talk, those conversations that happen around the table during dinner. Luke opens this 14th chapter by telling us that Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath. Now, there are four very important things in this one verse. First of all, he's going to the house of the leader in the community, and he happened to be a Pharisee. He was invited into this dinner party. 
he was invited to a meal, and then it is the Sabbath, and they are watching Jesus closely. Well, the Pharisees were an important religious group of the time. We talk a lot about the Pharisees in, our, in the gospel stories because they were the ones who were constantly coming up against Jesus. And so if we had a Pharisee here today in this room, he would describe himself sort of like this. We maintain our Jewish identity by keeping the Torah, the Hebrew law. Even when we live among non-believers, we keep our religion and ourselves pure. Even when the military powers of this world enslave us, we remain God's people. That's kind of how they would describe themselves. You see, by faithfulness to the Torah, the observant Jew could say, I know who I am and the world knows who we are because we keep God's law. We keep God's law. And at the time there, when most other cultures were being lost to the ways of the Romans, the Romans thinking and doing, the Pharisees offered a method of maintaining Jewish identity. So we notice in this dinner party, some important things are happening around the people as they gather for dinner. Table Talk provides a forum for friends and family to catch up on the events and the lives of one another. And at the dinner table, we teach our children manners. We try to, at least, right? We try to teach our children manners, and at the table, we hear the stories that bind us together as immediate family, larger community, and even the nation. <clears throat> Sometimes the staff will gather for a meal, and we like to tell stories like on each other. You know, remember the time when Pastor Tim walked into a different house for a different dinner party and sat down like he belonged there? You know, we... We tell those kind of stories, or we tell the times like, you remember the time that Pastor Terry said a bad word in a sermon when she really didn't mean to say that word? And, they're walking, and we walked in and heard the, them playing it over and over again on the recording and laughing. You know, we tell those kinds of stories to, on each other when we're gathered for dinner. We also learn those family secrets, don't we, that aren't supposed to be shared outside of the circle. And at the dinner table, we're often told what's expected of us. How many of us have ever had our parents say, at dinner, we're going to talk about that? Yeah. We, we hear these things that are, this table talk is important. As the Swan family gathered last week to remember and celebrate the life of Joe's dad, Jerry, we heard a lot of stories. We shared those around the table. The Swan family has about three tables, though. We have bukus of table. When I first met Joe, I came in for dinner, and I realized that in the Swan family, it's grab and growl. If you don't get your plate first, you might not get a plate. And so it was funny to watch all of the family kind of gather, and we laughed, and we cried, and we shared some really good food from the community. Food is so healing in a lot of ways to be able to share those meals together. Pastor and author Fred Craddock has said that table conversation has a long history with religion, social, and psychological meaning. You know, isn't it any wonder that we gather around for worship of God around the communion table? Next, we're told that this is the Sabbath. In fact, in the common English, it starts off that way. 
It's the Sabbath. This is a very important point. Keeping this holy day of rest and worship was central to the Jewish community. Jewish law developed 270 different regulations for keeping the Sabbath. <laughs> Can you imagine? And Sabbath wasn't Sunday like we observe it. It was Saturday. And so from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, they had to observe all of these rules. And to the Pharisees, these rules were essential. And Jewish identity as the chosen people of God was bound up in keeping the Sabbath rules. And then we hear that they're watching him. What is that all about? They had invited Jesus to dinner to make sure he was not breaking the rules. And maybe even to trap him. And it's by no means impossible that the Pharisees even planted this man with dropsy, as some of the scriptures refer to. We know that now as edema for some of the physicians in the room. They probably placed him in this house to see what Jesus would do. William Barclay says the word used here for watching him in its original language actually means interested and sinister espionage. They're watching him closely. They're spying on him. So it's safe to say that Jesus was under scrutiny, right? He was under scrutiny. And how he responds, how Jesus responds to this scrutiny in the midst of a dinner conversation is a lesson for each of us today. How many of us have been at a dinner when something is said that sends you into orbit? Uh-huh. Think of those Thanksgiving meals, those Christmas meals, and politics comes up in the conversation and you have to shove a big bite of food in your mouth so that you don't say something that you shouldn't, right? I think we've all had that experience at one time or another. Notice how cool and collected Jesus is, even in the midst of entrapment. They, he knows why they've brought him there, and he just responds... In this cool and collected manner, first of all, without hesitation, Sabbath or not, he heals the man. He looks at the need of the person, and he addresses that first. The gospel records seven healings on the Sabbath. So it goes to say it might be kind of important to take notice what Jesus says the Sabbath is all about. It's a about a relationship with God. It's not about the rules. It's about humbling ourselves before God, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Jesus was making a point to live out the gospel. To do good on the Sabbath gives Sabbath honor. Amen? To one of the most problematic congregations out there, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth this. Don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Look at the person, wake them up around you and say, God's spirit lives in you. Are you awake out there? Okay. God's spirit lives in you. Christ, the light of the world, commissions us to be the lights of the world. This series, Travel Light, isn't only about the baggage we tend to drag along behind us and with us in this journey of faith. It's also about traveling with the light of the world in us. 
If others are to experience the light of the world, it will be in us and through us as those who follow Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world because God has placed God's spirit in you. Notice how Jesus responds to those around the table. We're going to come to that in just a second. He responds in compassion for the need of the man in healing and addresses the need for status for those seated around the table. He's noticed something. He's noticing the people jockeying for seats at the table. He targets their fundamental misunderstanding and really their self-serving approach to Sabbath-keeping. Talk about the need for reevaluating worship. They're more concerned about where they're going to sit at the table than they are about this man who's ill. What he does next sounds like generic dinner party advice, but it's not. It's a parable. And he gives us a lesson on promotion and prestige. I'm going to pick it up now on verse 7 if you're following along. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. And then verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you, may, you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid by, at the resurrec- resurrection of the righteous. Seats at the table. They're all trying to jockey for where they're going to sit around that table. Do you ever worry about your seat at the table? Whether it's family, business, friends, or anything else, don't we all wonder where we are in the pecking order? I'm the baby of the family. Baby of the family, they have a role lots of times. But in my family, the baby of the family was the lowest on the pecking order. And for the longest time, I would, I would have difficulty in, in, in getting my family to hear me. You know, we all kind of have different family systems and different businesses and different organizations that we work in. And, and there's this kind of pecking order, and that's just natural. The Hebrew people of Jesus' time were not unlike people of every generation. We all want to feel important. Successful, noticed. I mean, really, who would ever want to go to a dinner party and not feel wanted at that dinner party? But Jesus is addressing something else totally here. 
You've probably been to one of those business events or parties where everyone's trying to be seen talking to the most influential. They want to be seen as someone who hobnobs with the powerful and important. That's the point of this parable that Jesus is working from here. Verse 11. Why don't we read that one together? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the point of the parable he's making. This parable is about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God works on self-lowering, not self-promoting. It's a reversal. Jesus is talking to the guests here at first, and then he turns to the host in the second part of this this parable. And he, as the table talk continues, he challenges the host to reconsider the guest list. If you were having a dinner party this week, who would be on your invite list, on your guest list? Probably people you know, right? Friends, brothers, sisters, relatives, neighbors. You would invite the people that you're friends with or you're comfortable around. And the reason for gathering people around the tables is to cultivate this relationship, to grow and to tell those stories and to laugh together and share together. But Jesus said the wrong people are too often invited. We should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. They have no capacity to repay our our generous hospitality. So our motivation for inviting them is completely different. Now, it's important to note, I was, Tim, Tim Power and I both listen a lot to Tim Keller uh, sometimes, and he called this an idiomatic expression of Jesus' time. He said, this is an idiomatic expression. Now, we know what those idiomatic expressions of our time are. If I say this, you're going to know what I mean. It's raining cats and dogs outside. What, do you, what am I saying? It's hard. It's raining hard, right? Or I say, that was a piece of cake. It's easy, right? We know those idiomatic expressions of our time. But when Jesus says this, do not invite your friends and relatives, he's not saying that you should never do that because that would be contradiction to a lot of what he talks about in the Bible of loving others, right? Can you imagine? I've just converted to Christianity and I send an email to all of my relatives and friends and say you can never come to dinner again. Because I'm living out Luke 14? No, he's not saying that. That would go over like a lead balloon. Yeah, you know what I mean. What Jesus is doing here is telling the Pharisees that to be followers of Christ, you must practice the gospel of hospitality. What does that mean? The invitation is given to offer love. And living in the light of love is honoring and worshiping God. That's what the Sabbath is about. Loving and honoring and worshiping God. Living in the light. Jesus knew the law. He lived by the law. But he also knew when the law was overstepping its real meaning. When we weren't living in the spirit of the law. I'm currently reading a book from my Lenten journey written by Jan Johnson. The the book is entitled, When the Soul Listens. And she says this, Jesus' assessment of the high-achieving Pharisees was this, Yes, 
they appeared to be righteous, but they were dead and corrupt on the inside, lacking justice, compassion, and faithfulness. They were full of greed and self-indulgence, hypocrisy and wickedness. Somehow these keepers of the book were knowledgeable about Scripture but did not recognize God in the flesh. They seemed to know a lot about God, yet did not know God's own self. They became focused or more focused on the spiritual practices than practicing being present with God. Do we do that too? I think we do. We tend to carry our travel bag full of our spiritual practices. Worship, check. Prayer, check. Scripture reading, check. Service, check. We check off our lists of our spiritual practices. Okay, now I'm close to God. Instead of being present with Christ, letting the power of the Holy Spirit work in our inner being first, and then our actions and our practices flow forth from that. A.W. Tozer, he's a theologian and evangelist of our time, says this. Most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for position, hoping but never being quite certain of anything, and always secretly afraid that we will miss the way. Does it resonate with anyone? Well, church, if the only thing we're carrying in our travel bag is the light of Christ, we will not miss the way. Amen? What are you carrying today? Are you checking off? Are you being with, being present with Christ? Let's pray. Invite the band, come on back up. Holy and loving God, help us to travel in your light. May you live in us. Your spirit live in us, just as you've promised. Help us to celebrate your love and your light with all people. May we live in the gospel of hospitality. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all of God's children said, amen.